This is Matthew Putman, and you're listening to Utility Function. With the enactment of the CHIPS Act back in August of 2022, there's been a lot of discussion about the relationship between new technology and national security. I had a lot of questions about what we should be looking out for and what our greatest threats to democracy might currently be. So I decided to speak with Zoe Weinberg. Zoe is the founder and general partner of Ex-Ante, a tech fund currently working to counter digital authoritarianism. She is a former Schmidt Futures Fellow and has conducted a wealth of research on subjects like national security law and public policy. She has also spent time as an aid worker on the ground in Iraq, where she searched for connections between tech policy and global conflict. As we continue to observe an explosion of technologies that are, quote, born open rather than born secret, we need to consider new ways to ethically regulate their development. The goal is to continue to allow democratic access to information while also maintaining digital accountability and preserving individual rights. In this conversation, Zoe and I discuss the affordances and dangers of continued migration towards virtual environments like the metaverse and expanding our definitions of conflict and national security to include those environments. Through promoting technologies that enable transparency, data ownership, privacy, and security, we're able to strengthen democracy from the inside and protect against future threats to user autonomy. Please note this conversation was recorded in November 2022. While Zoe and I do address the rise of generative AI, we do not mention ChatGPT explicitly because the tech had not yet entered widespread usage. You know, what strikes me so much about the stuff you have done is that there's a lot of courage involved. And uh, that really impresses me, whether it's courage to be out in the field doing the work rather than in an ivory tower doing the work or whether it's, you know, publishing on things that are, you know, sort of cutting edge and potentially controversial in a time where there's going to be change, whether you like it or not. Right. But, But you may be able to influence that discourse. Um, what are the things you working on, you're working on the most important things right now? I think the way that I think about problem solving is that it's important to try to match your skill set with the world's greatest needs. And so it's not that I necessarily think that it ever makes sense to try to stack rank the most important challenges or the most important issues. But I do think that I am most fulfilled and gratified when I'm working on something that feels urgent and feels, uh, feels necessary and immediate and important. And I think a lot of people feel that way in, in whatever field they're in. And so um, you know, I don't. I don't think that's unique to working on issues around democracy or, or freedom or security at all. Um, but I think that is the area that I have uh, have long been excited about, and um, and where I feel like hopefully I can match. You know, my my skills with those needs. Definitely, there's something about how personal experience maybe shapes what what those priorities are maybe I'm, yeah. I'm so I'm so interested in that journey that you made um, you know whether it was your work in Iraq or you know your work before that that led you to that that we could can we talk about that a little bit yeah for sure you know um, I mean you mentioned 
you know, kind of courage before and a willingness to, to sort of get off the beaten path or be contrarian and, and so forth. And I, um, I definitely feel that the most formative personal and professional experiences I've had have been the ones uh, that were prompted by a desire to take a little bit more risk. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think, I mean, my work in Iraq is a good example. Um, I was in law school at the time, and I actually had lined up a very, you know, prestigious internship at The Hague where I was going to focus on, you know, war crimes that, uh, you know, that are being prosecuted uh, in some of the tribunals there. Um, and, you know, as somebody who studied human rights law, this was, and, and international humanitarian law, this was a, a very exciting prospect. Um, but at a certain point, you know, in the months leading up to my departure for The Hague, um, I realized uh, that, you know, I, I could go and spend my time working on war crimes and conflict that had happened 20 years ago in the former Yugoslavia, or I could try to spend time on some of the current conflicts and security issues that were playing out in the present day. And I think sitting in the classroom and learning about things like the law of armed conflict in a really abstract setting was like pretty unsatisfying. <laughs> and the only people in the room who really had any real experience with the issues we were talking about were military veterans. And so, and and we had a handful of them in our class, but you know, by no means was that the majority of the people sitting there. And I realized that there were only like three ways for me to try to see any of this stuff up close. And one was, you know, join the military. Two was become a war journalist. And three was become an aid worker. The first two seemed very hard to pull off in a short period of time. And so I opted for the third. And I decided to turn down that internship in The Hague and, um, and go work uh, as an aid worker in Iraq. And, and this was... In in 2017, um, when the U.S. coalition and Iraqi forces were focused on taking back Mosul uh, from from ISIS, so I was based in northern Iraq and working mostly on Mosul. Do you think it's an inherent problem with the law and, and the way it's taught in general, or the way it's practiced, that it's that it's disconnected in this way? I think it's probably an inherent problem in a lot of academic fields. Um, I I think a lot. I think uh, once you're once you are sort of out in the world and practicing law, I think you have many more opportunities to sort of get close to the ground and get close to the problems. Um, but uh, I do think that oftentimes the law presents issues as much more black and white than than they are in reality. And of course, that's the job of courts to try to adjudicate in those messier cases. But I think when you're on the ground, um, you know, at least I'll say in the context of international humanitarian law, you realize how fuzzy the lines are and, and how difficult it can be to determine whether something was lawful or not. Um, and I, I really appreciated having the opportunity to see that up close. But certainly, you know, my classmates and professors all thought I was making a huge mistake. You know, it wasn't a prestigious law internship. You know, I wasn't even going to be really, you know, I wasn't really practicing law that summer. It was just sort of a life experience. And 
Um, so I would say in that moment, it felt like it took a little courage to say, you know what, I think this is just going to be insightful, informative, challenging, meaningful. And, and no, maybe it's not instrumentally helpful on my resume, but you know, when else am I going to be able to do this? Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. I, I think about the, whether it's, you know, enforcement or interpretation of law versus the creation of new policy and looking at the way that the world operates from this new perspective that you had. Uh, it, did, did you make that decision while there that you were going to take your life in that direction? You know, I think I, I had um, a few experiences while I was on the ground that helped, for, helped me connect the dots between this interest in areas like security and conflict and fragility and, uh, and a, a totally different domain that I also was interested in, which was like tech policy, but I hadn't previously found ways to meaningfully connect the two. Um, but, you know, while I was... Uh, you know, while I was in Iraq and also, you know, I've, I've spent some time in some other conflict zones as well, you know, I became interested in the ways in which technology was being deployed in conflict to surveil and manipulate and control people, but also the ways that people on the ground were, you know, downloading signal in order to share information and communicate or... Um, in in some cases, like mining Bitcoin, because you know their local currency was unreliable, and um, and I and and so I think for me, th there was a little bit of this like light bulb of like, huh, like there is an interesting way in which technology uh, is both um, you know sort of facilitating harm in in the realm of conflict, but also potentially mitigating it. When when you say technology and think about this, I I always uh, get a little lost in conversations about whether people are thinking of government policy or thinking about corporate policies. You know, it, you yeah. know, you have especially when you're talking about decentralization and centralization of power. You know, there's yeah. the, is there the Facebook that is a cons is the concern or is it the way that government is using technology in these areas that are most concerning to you? And where do you think the biggest opportunities lie? Yeah, I think it's a, I, th I think it's a both and, right? Um, which might not be that satisfying of an answer, but, um, you know, I think uh, when I think of a, you know, threat to global democracy like digital authoritarianism, mm -hmm. you know, for sure I'm thinking about um, technology as it's being deployed from authoritarian and autocratic regimes. But I'm also referring to surveillance capitalism, right, and the ways in which that plays out in corporate America and all over the world. Um, so I think it takes both forms. There is sometimes clear intention behind it. There's sometimes, you know, maybe less direct intention. Um, but, uh, but I think these, these threats sort of, you know, are, are taking different forms. I think what's been kind of different over maybe a longer arc of history is that historically, uh, a lot of technological development related to national security was, you know, quote unquote, born secret. 
Like it was developed in government laboratories. It was classified. It was highly controlled. Manufacturing, you know, was was at such a high degree that it was, it, you know, it's, it wasn't sort of easy to do those the 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 sort of dissemination and transfer, etc. Um, the you know the barriers to entry were very high, um, and um, and I think increasingly today there is more technology that is quote-unquote born open. It's being developed in academic settings, in companies, in startups, in somebody's dorm room, et cetera. And, uh, and that is both fantastic from an innovation lens and from a democratization of tools and allowing lots of people to, you know, to contribute to some of those projects and, and that progress. But uh, the flip side is that the risks are much more diffuse and fragmented, and uh, the possibility of very powerful tools getting into you know the wrong hands uh, is 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 heightened, um, and and that's for sure broad strokes and an oversimplification. Um, and you work in this domain, so I would love to hear your thoughts on that. But I think that that's a, a pretty meaningful shift when you think about the intersections of, of tech and national security? You know, as much as, you know, we live in an open society, and, and especially if you're talking about Internet and, you know, the, the way that we have communications, there still are these borders, and there are societies that are more born secret than born open still. Um, For sure. How, how are you seeing that right now? Is China a born secret um, nation still? Uh yeah, I think on net everybody and would would agree that it is, and that you know they've been extremely effective in 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 creating their own sort of uh, digital ecosystem that is walled off from the world. Does this put us in a more war warlike mentality with a an area that is born open versus born secret? I think that generally the the spirit of technology that is you know born open uh, in many ways is sort of you know aligned with democratic values, but that's not to say that all technology ought to be born open. I mean, I'm not trying to make a normative statement there, and in fact, I think it's important that that certain types of advanced technology you know be in developed in controlled settings, whether that's government or you know, an academic lab or, or so forth. So, um, you know, I, I, but, but I would say that, you know, generally the idea of having open access to information, democratizing access to information, the open source movement, et cetera, um, I would say is largely aligned uh, with, a, with a sort of democratic zeitgeist, if you will. Yeah, I mean, so, so much of what I see that you're doing is trying to figure out and I, I could be completely wrong, so always just correct me and say I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, which is very possible. But at, at, what, at what point during the development of technologies and technological, um, technological um, policy and do we get involved with ethical decisions in a way? Or in, in, at what time do we step in? And, um, that, and I could see where in a completely open environment, there may not even be the opportunity to step in. Do you, do you see that at all? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think that ethical considerations need to be taken into account 
on not even day one, but day zero. Right. Right. And it and ideally you're you're embedding uh, a certain set of of intentional values into the development of your tools, into product development, into uh, you know, the design of how the product is used into who has access to it, into who do you sell to, et cetera. Like that should, that should be part of the earliest stages of technological development. I think what you're asking is like, is there a opportune time to intervene yeah, as a is third there a, party? Is there really an on-ramp and an open framework for technological development? I think maybe there can be like a set of principles or, yeah. or, um, you know, or standards, and maybe that is even a better tool than, say, hard regulation, but that ideally would influence the way that all of these, you know, sort of open source tools or innovations are built. But I, I, I would love to hear your perspective on that. Well, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out, too. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know that I, you know, as much as I, I generally th think that these things I tend to be a kind of a utopian about things and believe that things work out in some ways if you if the technology exists. But I, I see many of the same examples that you have dealt with where it's dangerous to feel that. You know, whether it's in the pri private sector, will want to survey. Um, mm -hmm. The pri you know the public sector may want to have autonomous weapons. You know, there are there and and if they were developed privately or independently and open, it could still be of danger. But I've been thinking about it, especially in terms of advanced artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. So, what about you know, G, if GPT three becomes GPT six or something like this, and you really don't have a clear dis, di, differentiator between what is human and what is AI, is there a chance right now? to build in some type of safety for the dissemination of ethical values it, from those AIs. So I've been thinking about that a lot, but I have no answer for how to do that. Yeah, I think like, you know, GPT-3 and like, it's it's scary what these tools can do, but it is hard to know like when is the right Well, I'm wondering point. if it's super exciting though too, you know? So mm -hmm. I'm wondering if the, the, the confusion about um, ethical alignment um, could actually be solved through an, an, an AI that can get information to enormous amounts of people all at once. You mean if you designed an AI yeah. in such a way that it had, uh, you know, sort of an ethical code that was written yeah. into, yeah. Yeah, and but with a mandate. Yeah. To disseminate it, not just to have the code written into it. Yeah, and disseminate information or disseminate. Yeah, disseminate information. Yeah. Disseminate information with human level feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, now that seems the opposite of make sure that you know whether you're speaking to an AI or a human and what is a deep fake and what's not. Right. Um, so maybe you need to know that you're speaking with an AI. Maybe you don't. I have no idea. It's just something that's been on my mind lately. Yeah. Um, because, it, because there's an inevitability about this, it feels right, right now, of being, t getting to a point where we're deeply confused about what we're, who we're dealing with, whether we're dealing with an AI or dealing with a human. We see it already in some, in, in some cases, you know, with different bots and things. But I mean, this, this could get to be, you know, so ubiquitous that, that we are completely lost unless we start to do something now. And I have no idea how to do that. 
And who should be doing it is what I'm curious to, who you think should be handling these types of things. I think the question is, what are the settings in which it matters uh, whether or not you're speaking to an AI or not? If I'm calling, you know, an airline's customer service line and, and an AI representative rather than a actual human customer service representative can address my challenges and needs Fantastic. then great like i would <laughs> yeah. rather not wait in line but if i were you know dating online and talking to somebody and it turned out they were not a human i think i'd very much want to know that right so so perhaps the question is like is there a way uh to effectively demarcate or or sort of stamp or watermark uh uh, any sort of use of human-like AI tech, whether it's through text or through voice, video, and so forth, or um, and so that so that a person who's consuming that sort of media, you know, uh, is able to identify when that's happening or not. But that's hard because there there will always be actors who, you know, don't have have an agenda that uh, would be at odds with actively watermarking right and, w- and their, there's nothing to inherently say that that which the artificial intelligence produces is going to be less trustworthy than the thing that the human produces in fact sure. it may be the opposite and right that, that that becomes confusing if something yeah. is marked in ai the do we inherently not trust it and perhaps we should mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right and and again like there are settings in which actually i might prefer to trust yeah a tool that is drawing on huge amounts of data versus anecdotal experience. Right. Uh, versus situations in which what I'm really looking for is, you know, human connection. Yeah. 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 I hear you. Yeah. I, I had this and I think I've talked about this before, but I do, do you play um, on any online games or anything? I no, I'm not, I would not I say that I'm a gamer, but I, there's certain aspects about gaming environments that, um, I think are really interesting to look at vis-a-vis the future development of the metaverse because I think in many ways games are the closest corollary we have in many instances to really immersive virtual environments. And so one of the things that I you know, have, have, have tried to sort of follow, but there, there frankly hasn't been much work done there, is um, you know, the proliferation of, of things like disinformation or conspiracy theories within gaming environments. Um, which uh, seems to be, and this is more anecdotal, uh, in many ways more powerful and more potent than than other you know networked uh, platforms, and and so that sort of thing I find really interesting. But no, I, I feel like I'm taking us uh, down no, a tangent. No, no, no. That's what were you going to say about no, gaming? No, no, that's an uh, you know I know nothing about gaming. First mm-hmm. of all, when I, I you know I play chess online and things, but mm-hmm. I. I've noticed that when I play against uh, a human, just knowing that it's a human is different yeah. than playing against an AI, even, yeah. and even though it's a- absolutely the same. I'll never meet that human. Right. Um, but just the, the knowing that I'm playing against a human feels different. As, as that starts to break down, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's going to be a lot different. Yeah. A lot but, different overall. But do you think that that's like a persistent human desire and quality to Maybe. want to connect with other humans? Maybe. Or will it get to a point where you know, really it's indistingu- It's not only indistinguishable, but we also don't care. That I don't know. That, Th- that I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I care, but I may just be, I, I may just be old and not <laughs> in tune with what it would be like to live in a world where AI and humans interact in a, in a way that is more 
in, in, in more I don't, natural? Yeah, I, I actually don't think that it's generational. I maybe think not. I think maybe there is something essentially human about wanting to connect with other humans. Yeah. And, um, and that, you know, in that sense, there are a whole host of, you know, very human needs that will never be fulfilled by by an AI confidant instead of a best friend. I mean, right? I, I certainly, I've been making this argument about music for a long time. So yeah. I, I play free jazz, so mm-hmm. I, which requires incredible amount of listening and interacting. It's, you know, it's very close mm-hmm. human experience. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about AI music right now. And right. I'm saying, no, it's not the same. It can't be, you know, and, and I'm getting a lot of pushback from people that, well, what, why can't it be interesting? Why can't it be just another tool f- like n- for creating music? And, I, I guess it could be, but I want to hold on to this human thing so badly. Right. Do you think that there's a way that some of those new technological, you know, tools or AI music can be incorporated into human performance? In an I do way? certainly, yeah. certainly, and I'm I, I'm sure that everybody felt that you know having synthesizers with delays on them or something was like this at a certain time. Like yeah. there's these really cool new tools. And, you know, why not have have you know some learning growing ai that is playing with you and interacting with you and making your playing more dynamic and having others involved still i do think it could be really cool i um yeah i I asked because i mean i haven't thought about it much in the music context but i have thought about it a little bit in the context of of visual art and 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 sort of generative art things like you know dolly or mid journey etc um and and I, I think part of the reason I find it interesting is that, you know, my, my family is in the art world and so I grew up around a lot of artists and, and and galleries and museums and things like that. But um but you know, one of the things that I found interesting about you know uh, about recent controversies or uproars about you know the use of something like Midjourney to create a piece of art that then is under the name of the person who just put in the prompt rather than, you know, created the image by hand, et cetera, is that I don't know how meaningfully different it is from all of the ways throughout history in which artists have been using both digital tools but also earlier technological tools, you know, to create and uh, and manufacture and generate art. And so to me, it's actually not that threatening to artists, right? It's not like, oh, now, you know, we won't need artists anymore. In fact, I think it's kind of exciting to think about how the most creative visual artists among us are going to think about ways of using those tools to create new types of art, et cetera. So it, it's just been like interesting to see that play out. Oh, you know, I, I've completely changed my view on this since um, trying to play around with Dali a little bit. Yeah. And it, it, the prompts are hard, right? It's hard, you know, yeah. there's an art in the prompts and it made right. me realize that this is how I think about AI in general. I always say that the the role of humans in, in an AI world is one where humans are going to be asking the right questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, you know, there, there'll be this great assistant to be able to help solve those and answer, you know, to, to be able to answer them and even create based on them. And I've, I've, Notice that the prompt is as an art itself is really mm-hmm. a powerful thing. So yep. I've completely changed my view on this after playing around with it That's and, f- and realizing how bad I am at it. 
I mean, the, the, you know, right. I, I, I can't. Or how unexpected the results can be, right? Which, well, yeah, they're unexpected, kind of, yeah. but I, I look at them and say, no, that's not art. I Just mm-hmm. like I'm not a good painter, I'm also not a good <laughs> prompter of Dolly yet. Right. <laughs> right. Know? And then maybe yeah. I will become one. I don't know. It's maybe a skill to try to work on, and it's exciting and interesting to play with, but there are the great, I bet there already are the great Dolly collaborative artists right now and that are doing generative art. Yeah, I'm sure there are. I mean, Sometimes I worry that even the the mere kind of branding of of machine learning as as artificial intelligence creates this personification that ends up feeling quite threatening and quite mm. existential in a way that I'm not sure that it needs to be. Like I think that before I spent any time in in the you know AI ML space. I found the whole prospect of artificial intelligence, you know, taking over the world in one form or another uh, to be quite, you know, terrifying. And and I think like the deeper you you get into these domains, and I'm curious if you feel the same way, the more that I started to feel like, okay, this is like ultimately fancy data science, right? Yeah. And it's incredibly powerful in lots of ways that will be super beneficial to humanity, et cetera. But let's not lose sight of what we're actually doing here. And I wonder if we, if we had not used the term artificial intelligence, if we'd be having a slightly different conversation about right. the technology itself. Right. I, yeah, the question is, I think, when we start to notice potential dangers and in what applications. Mm-hmm. You know, is it, you know, I mean, let's let's talk about autonomous weapons, for instance. I know it's something yeah. that you've talked about. You know, is the labeling of autonomous weapons to be artificial intelligence-driven weapons actually then a useful type of propaganda tool to stop something that could become dangerous? Yeah. Um, you know, lethal autonomous weapons are an area where I think, um, you know, anything to do with AI and automation and security like really comes to a head uh and and branding and messing med- messaging in that domain also matters right the yeah. the opponents of uh lethal <laughs> autonomous weapons you know will mostly call them killer robots right and that um you know conjures up a very different you know different image um you know i i spent some time working on uh the national security commission on artificial intelligence which was a congressional commission and that was the period in which I became very interested in in lethal autonomous weapons or laws um, is the very confusing uh, acronym there. Um, but uh, but you know I think what I realized after spending time studying lethal autonomous weapons is that uh, it's not quite clear cut what is a lethal autonomous weapon. Is it defined by the duration of time between setting it and uh, and and something occurring in the world, right? Because we also we already have numerous weapons out there that have a degree of automation, right? These sort of like you know set it and fire uh, you know tools, etc. Um, and so, what what makes a lethal autonomous weapon distinct? Is it is it that we may make those decisions days or weeks ahead of time as opposed to minutes or seconds. Um, and then there's also this, this, I think, ongoing question or sort of debate um, about whether or not 
lethal autonomous weapons in some instances could be perhaps uh, morally superior or or sort of more humanitarian because uh, they may be using more uh, more you know sort of precision technology that reduces the chances of of uh, collateral damage and casualties and so forth. And that's the argument that I think a lot of people who are developing these Do tools buy into will that say. One? Um, I think it's true that for sure, you know, uh, more advanced technology can be more precise. I think, I think the question that people often neglect, which comes next, is whether or not that will then change the threshold of engagement. Right. right, right. You're going to be using it more, perhaps. Right. If you know that you're probably not going to cause a lot of collateral damage and it's very targeted and very precise, you may be much quicker to, to you know, pull the trigger, right? Yeah, isn't it better to maybe just say, let's not have as many wars? Right, or, or <laughs> let's try to just reduce the, um, the amount of, you know, sort of military engagement generally, right? And so, and I, and I think we don't have a good answer to that yet because maybe the, I mean, maybe the conclusion one should draw is that if we have these much more precise weapons, then actually it's unethical to, to, you know, drop a dumb bomb, right? Or something that doesn't have precision. And that totally changes the threshold for, for engaging and how you engage. And I don't think that militaries around the world want to do that because they want to have the option. Well, yeah, it's possible that it's unethical to do both. (laughs) Right. That too. So I, you know, I think, um, I think that the more that you dig into autonomy and uh, and weapons, uh, frankly, the more complicated it gets. Um, and and in some ways, it, you know, I think to to somebody you know who who's not spending a lot of time there is kind of on the outside. Um, it feels very easy to draw it in these stark, uh, you know, the stark opposition of of good versus evil and killer robots versus humanitarians, etc. Um, but it's actually more complicated. Yeah, I'm probably way too simplistic about it. But where do you stand now as far as optimism or pessimism about where we're going in warfare in general and how we deal with military? I think you sort of, I think you have to be optimistic to a degree to work in these areas. And yet, a lot of my colleagues who've spent a lot of time in conflict zones, you know, are, get pretty jaded, right? And yet, uh, and and it's understandable. You know, I think uh, they are often working in really challenging circumstances in really dark corners of the globe. Um, but I think if I, you know, I think if I allow myself uh, to to drift into real cynicism and pessimism it's going to be hard to do any of the work that I want to do. Well, you're taking real action, though. You're doing something. You're not sitting back and, you know, worrying or not worrying. I mean, you're, you're actually working in this field. I appreciate, I appreciate you saying that. I think there's ways to work on it um, in, in a sort of upstream approach, which is what I'm doing now, um, focused on you know, technology that ultimately will help to advance things like democratic values and individual rights and accountability. Uh, Certainly there are people who are working on these challenges on the ground, and I had only a small taste of that, but but in many ways, you know, I would say those are the folks who are really rolling up their sleeves 
and, you know, addressing the here and now. And I have enormous admiration and respect for that. Um, but yes, there's a lot of vantage points or, uh, or approaches to trying to solve some of these problems. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to bite off a very small piece of it. I'm probably going to jump around a lot here and talking about the metaverse because sure. you, so you wrote this piece that got so much attention. <laughs> um, first of all, just to let everybody know how, how you got into thinking about this and does it, does it evolve at all from all this other work that you've been doing in focus? I think it relates to my other work uh, in that it really sits at this intersection of, of thinking about questions related to foreign policy and geopolitics and national security, and then thinking about the ways in which technology is going to turn some of that perhaps on its head. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Matthew, when I first started thinking about writing that piece, um, it was, you know, like 18 months ago, and I couldn't get anybody interested in it. No kidding. Like, people didn't really know what the metaverse was. You know, you Googled it, and, like, only a handful of things came up, et cetera. Um, and, uh, and so I sort of had a, you know, 50% drafted version sitting on my desktop for a long time. Really? Yeah. And then, and actually, I even, you know, I even sort of, you know, pitched some folks in Washington about doing something related to the topic, and everybody, it felt like everyone sort of balked and was like, what? Like, no matter what? So... Um, I kind of backed off. I, you know, I let it kind of sit for a while. And then Facebook made their announcement about changing their name to Meta. And all of a sudden, there was obviously an explosion of interest in the metaverse. It became a term that people knew, et cetera. Um, uh, and so then, you know, then that created the opportunity to actually, you know, publish what I've been working on. But um, it, it's interesting to me that even if a few months prior, just it's, it sounded a little kooky to, to say, oh, I wonder what geopolitics will look like in the metaverse. Like I, you know, and I realized that, but, but I thought it was interesting. <laughs> and I felt like nobody had asked that question yet. Yeah. Now a lot of people are asking the question. Yeah, and the, you know, you, you say about when Facebook changed their name to Meta, uh, I think one of the things that immediately came to a lot of our minds was whether this was going to be a centralized corporate platform rather than an, a internet style. Right. Um, and did, did this, what's your feeling on that? And what's right or wrong in this? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not even sure how I feel about it. I think, I think the spirit of the metaverse and most people who are working in it, um, is, uh, is much, much more strongly in favor of decentralized, it, virtual environments versus ones that are centrally controlled. Uh, is there something inherent in the definition of metaverse that that would prevent it from being built by a single corporation? I'm not sure, but I think we also don't really know what, what I mean, we the internet refer was, to. I mean, the internet is a sort of single platform. I mean, there is a, a, a yeah. protocol. Right. Yes, that's true. Although, yeah, and I well, but but here's a question that I think you know, maybe we've resolved in the case of the internet, which is like, is it the internet or is it multiple internets, et cetera? And, and I think in the metaverse, when it comes to the metaverse, like we don't even know, or we, I don't know that we have consensus yet about the nomenclature there. Like I, I think some people would argue, no, 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 it is the metaverse. And that refers to the large overarching concept. And other people would say, no, 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 there are metaverses that are digital environments that are 
controlled by central entities or more decentralized, et cetera, or, or built by startups. And, and some of those, you know, are interoperable and you can move across them and some of them aren't, et cetera. I think usually when I talk about the metaverse, I'm probably talking about it in the formal way as sort of this like large conceptual mm -hmm. idea versus making a statement about whether or not it is a single metaverse control, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's an uninteresting question. I think it's probably a technological one that will need to be answered right, in a fairly right. short amount of time. Right. Um, if we think it's going to go quickly, you know, especially. Yeah. I mean, it, so were you influenced by Snow Crash? Yeah, well, it, you know, it's funny that that, you know, is like the etymology of the term, because I think, a, I think you know, the, the explosion of interest in the metaverse today has created a lot of, you know, renewed interest, both in Snow Crash, but I would say also a lot of, you know, sort of earlier um, science fiction work. Um, so, no, I think, my, I think my interest in the topic itself and this question of, of how national security would play out in those environments was a little bit removed from from the work itself. Um, but I think it's a good reminder that fiction and creative work in many ways can prompt us to think about questions that actually will be quite real and relevant to our world, either today or at some point in the future. And uh, I sometimes think that things like fiction and science fiction is a good example, but fiction generally is, is kind of underutilized in policymaking communities and in, uh, and in any sort of innovation setting in which you have to kind of imagine the impossible. I love to hear you say that. I, I feel so much the same way. I, I, I worry that we've lived in 30 or so, maybe 40 or so years of dystopian science fiction and that that's going to be self-perpetuating if we don't have something that, that is Star Trek-like and showing a future that could be better. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if there should be sort of an assignment of writing, you know, in a sense. I think there might be, or there maybe should be. And actually, one of the things that I, I um, really loved about uh, the National Security Commission on AI, which I mentioned I spent some time on, is um, as part of their work, they invited people to submit uh, writing, including works of fiction, about what the future could look like with regards to national security and AI. And I thought that was a very inventive way for a government commission to solicit input. Was you there know. good work that came out of it? I remember some interesting pieces. I think it was all published, I think, in conjunction with War on the Rocks. Um, and, you know, I'd have to go back and, and dig into some of them. But I remember reading it and thinking, God, this was like, this was an interesting prompt. And rather than just you know, soliciting general comment from the public or whatever. It was a very, it was a very thoughtful and creative way of, of, of engaging with with the public. So I, anyway, I like I that. that. I think there needs to be more of that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 for a number of reasons, I think it's also probably it can hold back scientific progress in general if there's not some inspiration. Yeah. Um, it's it's interesting that Snow Crash is the inspiration because it's not a particularly pleasant world that's created. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, no, that's uh, true. <laughs> but it's still the inspiration for so many people that want to create the metaverse. Right, right. Well, I think, you know, what science fiction often does very effectively is, you know, sort of holds up a mirror to ourselves by, you know, sometimes creating environments that are quite similar to the ones that we live in today, but with, with subtle differences that sort of awaken you, awaken the reader to the possibility uh, 
that that with just a little bit of a turn this way or that way, we could end up in a in a much more dystopian state of the world. Um, yeah, but. yeah, I think that's right. You know, there's an episode of Star Trek, um, and it's been a long time since I've seen it, uh, where there's this warring planet that, and they're but they're in a they're pretty advanced civilization. And everything is autonomous, in, you know, and so they don't, it's, it's all like a gaming environment. So you think of a sort of metaverse environment, they're mm-hmm. playing, um, the winners or losers are virtual, um, but beca- to raise the stakes, they end up just executing people from time to time wow. um, to say who won because, you know, they don't want, they're not actually dropping bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there, there was something about it that really, it resolves in a nice way. But it's it, there. There is something about. Do you, do you think there is something that will push people to move either strictly to the metaverse in conflict, or will force you out of it just out of human nature in the same way that you know falling in love should be better as as you know one on one humans than with an AI. Uh, do you, do you see something like this happening? It's hard for me to imagine a future in which all conflict migrates to virtual environments and there's no, you know, kinetic conflict in the world whatsoever. I mean, I think uh, I think if you look at Ukraine, uh, it is very apparent that, you know, uh, kinetic on the ground mm-hmm. combat combat, um, you know, is very much still a reality in, in 2022. Um so it's hard for me to imagine that that situation. However, I think that our understanding of conflict and national security has been expanding and needs to further expand to incorporate the tar- types of uh, you know harms that could be perpetrated through digital environments. For example, things like espionage or or surveillance or information operation campaigns, etc. Um, none of which are new phenomenons, but the vet, the metaverse may in some ways better facilitate some of that, uh, some of that work and, uh, and, and efforts. Um, I think what we don't yet know is whether or not being in a very immersive environment with layers of voice and image and text and, uh, you know, and noise, et cetera, is in fact significantly more potent in influencing participants than say reading a static news feed. And I just don't think we know whether that's the case. Like are you more susceptible to a conspiracy theory if you're if you're learning about it through some sort of VR experience versus reading a fake news post on Twitter? And I I, I mean maybe somebody's doing research on that. My guess would be that powerful immersive experiences do in fact leave bigger imprints on an individual, that would just be my instinct. You but, would think so. But, yeah. but, um, but I don't think we know yet. Um, the, uh, the other thing I was going to say about you know, conflict in the metaverse is that I think that the stakes, the stakes will just get higher if, in fact, individuals do migrate more of their lives to these virtual environments. So if we end up accessing our healthcare via telehealth in the metaverse and we access education through online virtual classrooms and we you know have a job that 
you know, is that a, it, you know, we're working for as part of a DAO, and you know, we our livelihood is is generated in the metaverse. Then any sort of attack on that virtual environment, it's not just like, oh man, my game went down for an afternoon, or Instagram is offline. It's like potentially hugely debilitating, yeah, um, and could pose a major security risk. And so. I think that's the sort of thing that we need to be on the lookout for if, in fact, our worlds do migrate to these environments. But that's that's not going to happen overnight. Yeah, but something to put into um, our policies, or at least our thoughts right now, I suppose. Right. In, in yeah, our experiments. I think we're or about. our experiments. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and trying to better understand. design what an experiment looks like to, to, to see what a human would feel like if they were going through loss or um yeah absolutely and i also think you know a lot of the solutions to these challenges are not necessarily technological it's like a psychological problem right i mean that's that's often the challenge with disinformation um you know or or deep fakes etc is that um uh you know even if something is properly labeled as false uh Oftentimes, people will believe it, right? Because yeah. there are bizarre psychological phenomenons that that. Once you believe it, yeah. you always believe it, regardless of. Right, or maybe you will, you sort of know it's not true, but you kind of believe it, right? You know, and I, and so that's not going to be solved by some you know technological you know flip of the switch. That's a much more challenging question around human psychology. That's amazing. So you you have a situation where we end up with proper watermarks of something that is fake or not and yeah. it still won't matter. That's the fear, right? And I, you know, I wish I, you know, sort of knew the source of this off the top of my head, but I, you know, I I remember, you know, learning about how there's there is such there they, there's been some like, you know, trials and experiments that have been done where people are shown a video and told that it's fake and and some very high number of people after watching the video still sort of believe it's real even though they've been told it's fake right so do they believe it's real or do they believe there's some truth in the sentiment of it that i don't know right i mean yeah I, and maybe it's really the latter but maybe that doesn't really matter because That's there's <laughs> some sort of confirmation bias that is more deeply entrenched by watching that video. And so even if you know that, okay, like that was a fake video of Biden, he doesn't actually think X, Y, Z, you're like, but it affirms my deeper yeah. belief about Biden. You know, I yeah, don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I knew it. I knew I it. I knew yeah, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe he didn't say it, but he believes it. You know, I don't know. Um, and uh, so anyway, you know, I think the the piece of the puzzle that has to do with like human behavior is a really, really tricky one. And I definitely don't have the answers to that. But I, you know, I am hopeful that there will be folks who are focused on human psychology and behavior that, that can help in that's, solving That's one of the issues. more interesting questions I've heard in a long time. I mean, it's the, the, the question of what, what we believe even if we know it to be wrong. That's, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be all, all the more true when we don't actually see what a person really looks like, yeah. but we see their avatar. Right. There's there's a concept in the book, um, Strangers in Their Own Land, which is really a book about about politics and, and sort of a uh, delves into the psychology of the Tea Party, et cetera. But um, the author, uh, whose name I believe is Arlie Hochschild, Hawk, right, she, she writes about this interesting concept of what she calls the, the deep story, 
And essentially, it's this idea that 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 people will hold in them a kind of deep narrative about themselves and the communities they belong to and so forth that may not actually be backed up empirically by any evidence, but it, it doesn't really matter. Like, if you feel like you've been slighted by, you know, the federal government or, or you know, some sort of group that's in power, et cetera, even if you are given a lot of evidence to the contrary, then, in fact, actually, you've come out pretty well, you're, you know, you're doing okay, whatever, it doesn't really matter because you have this deep story um, and that so much of American politics is actually dictated by deep stories on both the left and the right um, that are really hard to overcome. And it's probably best not to just call people idiots for believing this because there is something perhaps... No, it's not. Re- it's not at all. Real, you know, real about this sentiment of, you know, I always think about this with, you know, something like Steven Pinker's work on, you know, the society becoming much better in this post-enlightenment mm-hmm. world and so on. So, yeah, but we don't feel very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right, so, so what does it okay, matter? Show me right. ch- charts right. and let's figure out how to get better because there's something going on inherently wrong yep. still. Right. And maybe we live in a more dangerous time too. Or mm-hmm. m- what are these things that we should wipe away the fact as the only thing that makes us gives us decision-making power. Right, and I think the things about our, our world and our life, our lives that, that are markedly better, um, you know, we often will take for granted because we don't, you know, we didn't live in 1750. Of course, we don't know yeah. the alternative. And so are there ways to, to try to adopt some of that perspective? Um, this is going to be a little bit offbeat, but I, um, I have a friend who has come up with this concept of an unvacation, and he argues that rather than, you know, if you go and take a vacation for two weeks and you're sitting on a resort and it's sunny and beautiful and you're having an amazing time, then you come back to your normal life and you're like, gosh, my normal life is so horrible <laughs> and boring. So his argument is that you should go do like hard labor for two weeks and be severely deprived of all, you know, creature comforts, etc. And then you'll come back to your life and the other 50 weeks a year you'll feel really great and you're like, "Wow, my life is amazing." So on net, wouldn't it be better actually for us to all take unvacations rather than vacations? Yeah, it's it depends how far you go with that, right? A little torture, a little waterboarding for yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Make you right, experience. That, right? a, uh, it would have to be voluntary. No, but, it's it's actually yeah. uh, no, I love the idea in some ways, <laughs> but Human experience is very strange for that, though. You know, yeah. we don't quite remember how bad certain experiences are. We just feel, you know, some trauma from them, perhaps. But it's really right. hard to remember how something feels. Mm-hmm. I, but I think it's a really interesting idea. <laughs> yeah, you can think about it. It might be a hard pitch for family members, like, hey, instead of going to the beach this year, we're, you know, going to go suffer. <laughs> yeah. But Well, I, I, you know, I guess... People do that. They they go and build houses for the poor or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think people find various ways of you know using time off to challenge themselves in in one way or another. And by the way, like the whole ability to choose to you know deprive yourself in one way or another is in itself like an insane privilege to have. Yeah. Right. Um, but you know, so I think like that's worth noting. But um, it is an interesting concept to think about. What are you know what are the ways that you can um, try to try to shine a different type of light on your on your own personal circumstances, and uh, and have a little bit of gratitude for the things that we usually take for granted. I like that. 
yeah, we'll give that a try. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm just interested in what you're most concerned about and wor- working towards changing. And I mean, I know surveillance being one that I'm especially interested in, if you want to speak about that, but anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I do worry a lot about, you know, democratic decline that is occurring worldwide. I mean, I think we're now in the 16th year of worldwide democratic decline. And, um, you know, Freedom House uh, uh, puts out really interesting, you know, work and research on this topic. But uh, something like eight out of 10 people live in a country today that it's either not free or only partly free. And the decline we've seen in, you know, democratic institutions and accountability and so forth, you know, it, it's not just in countries that you might suspect, like Myanmar, et cetera, but the backsliding you're seeing is also happening in the, in the U.S. Um, and I think, you know, I, I came of age in a period in which it felt like there was a lot of, a lot of promise and, and hope and, you know, uh, and, and, and so I think, um, realizing that, uh, that democracy is incredibly fragile. How uh, vulnerable are we right now? I think it's hard to rate on, you know, a scale of one to 10 or something like that. But I would argue that, that the biggest threats to American democracy today are not a kinetic invasion on one of our borders. It is the deterioration of democracy from within as a result of lack of trust in public institutions, greater polarization, conspiracy theories and disinformation, foreign interference in elections, et cetera. And all of those are things that, you know, fundamentally threaten democracy, but in a way that's a little bit different than, than I think what we typically think of in a framework of, of traditional defense or national security. You know, d- distrust of institutions I could see being destabilizing, but do you, do you have a sense that institutions should be distrusted more than they used to be? I think we definitely need more accountability and transparency, whether it's in the United States or in other parts of the world. But I think that this sense that that no institution can be trusted or there are no third parties that are worth relying on um, is pretty dangerous for a society, right? Like in order for society to function, like there has to be a pretty high degree of trust. Um, So I would say, you know, there are lots of ways in which, um, you know, our, our trust has probably been abused, but there are two reactions you could have from that conclusion. One is like, nobody can be trusted. We all must be totally self-sovereign, et cetera. Or, you know, how can we make these institutions more worthy of our trust? Yeah. And I think I would, you know, I would, I would like to I would like to work towards the, the latter if we can, because I think that's important for the fra- fabric of a community, but also a, a, a democracy. How do you work towards it, and how can anybody else? What, what, what can we do? I think that we can, um, you know, think about accountability on multiple different levels. Certainly at the level of government and, and public service, you know, there are ways that we can try to keep politicians accountable, and part of that is about being engaged in the political process and 
um, and being willing to sort of mobilize. And, you know, it's I think it's nice to see bigger turnouts at elections. I would like to see those trends continue. I think there's also a way that you can encourage accountability, you know, at the within the private sector and um, and at corporations. Uh, you know, historically, I think the you know the the inherited wisdom is that shareholders and stakeholders in a company care about one thing, and that's returns and that's profit maximization. And I think we've learned, particularly in the last decade or two, that actually you know, a shareholder is not an abstract concept, but actually a person who has a whole diverse variety of interests, one of which is returns and one of which might also be, you know, the, uh, the protection of their rivers so that they have clean water and the good treatment of employees because they also are an employee and so forth. So I think there's a way that we should be keeping the private sector accountable. And then also on a personal level, um, you know, what are the ways in which, you know, we have, uh, a degree of, of accountability and responsibility in our in our own you know lives and communities. I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're doing. What I'm working on right now is is really trying to help to advance technology that that ultimately will make democracies more robust and resilient by uh, by promoting individual rights and transparency and accountability and privacy and and, uh, and digital rights and data ownership and so forth. Um, you know, usually that means tools that are more private, more secure, more decentralized. Um, but, uh, but I think if we really want to think about how to change the value exchange of the internet, we, we need to think about uh, the ways in which each individual person and user uh, is able to maintain control over over their information, both that they consume and also that they share with the world, their data, their communication, and so forth. And that historically hasn't been the way in which you you monetize uh, technology online. But I think that there are both technological breakthroughs as well as you know meaningful consumer demand that is tipping the scales there. And that's really what I'm focused on is, seeing, you know, the next generation of, of companies uh, that, that are, are really going to help to nudge us in that direction. Uh, I, I can't tell you how happy I am to hear you say all of these things. You really are an inspiration <laughs> to a lot of people now. Um, and I look forward to the next stuff. Thank you. I, um, I, you know, I certainly, uh, you know, I'm not working on all of these things alone. And there's lots of people who have worked on these issues, um, you know, as we talked about before, you know, on the ground, but also people who've been working on it from an advocacy and policy perspective and research domain and so forth. So, you know, it's, uh, it is a big group effort <laughs> to try to identify some of these challenges and, uh, and mitigate them and hopefully build toward a better future. I want to get involved. I hope I hope all of us do. It's we'll find way. we will find a way oh, to that'd be involved. Great. So, yeah,